Talk to any emergency doctor worth their salt, and they'll tell you that it isn't the wildly sick patients who keep them up all night. It's the ones they send home. Part of what makes emergency medicine so difficult is the need to quickly sort out patients into three main categories, low risk, medium risk, and high risk. Or another way of thinking about it, safe to go home, safe fish for home, and you're sleeping here tonight. Every disease has high and low risk patients, and every patient has diseases they're individually more or less likely to have. It's a battle of odds, and the stakes couldn't be higher. So fittingly, today, we're talking about a high-risk topic, but in low-risk patients. Chest pain. Now, if this isn't bread and butter emerge, I don't know what is. By the end of this episode, we hope you'll be able to wield tools like the heart score and repeat troponins with ease and with a singular goal in mind. Today, we answer the question, who with chest pain can I send home? Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. It seems that the current ED standard of practice for managing patients with low-risk chest pain and possible ACS in the U.S. involves admission or observation in an observation unit and non-invasive cardiac testing either immediately or in a day or two. But this approach isn't so efficient, costs a boatload, and has never really been shown to improve patient outcomes. We probably underestimate the risks of admitting patients to the hospital and probably underestimate the risks of overdiagnosis and all the false positives associated with non-invasive cardiac tests. And we don't want to miss ACS ever, really. So erring on the side of testing and admission for low-risk chest pain is really very common. But things have changed in recent years with the widespread use of high-sensitivity troponins, delta troponins, validation of the heart pathway for prognostication, and ASEP suggesting that routine stress testing should not be routinely done. Now, these recent advances are complex. So today, with the help of Professor Eddie Lang, who you may remember from his amazing contributions to our two-part PE podcast that we recorded at the same time last year, and a new voice to EM cases, Dr. Andrew McRae, an EM doc from Calgary and researcher with a special interest in this exact topic we're discussing today. We're going to hack the complex literature of low-risk chest pain so that you can feel more confident risk stratifying and deciding on disposition for the next few hundred patients you see with low ACS risk chest pain. So Dr. McRae, you're uh, new to EM cases. Can you just tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. I'm an emergency physician in Calgary and I have a uh, 50% protected research time. Most of my interest is in the evaluation of patients with cardiovascular emergencies. With respect to suspected ACS in particular, we've done a fair bit of work in validating some rapid diagnostic pathways using high-sensitivity troponin assays. And now we're looking at the next frontier as how we can use these tests to better risk stratify patients to really clearly identify who does need subsequent testing for low-risk chest pain and who doesn't. All right. So we got a true expert here. Amazing. So let's dive into our first case. A 63-year-old woman with a history of hypertension and diabetes presents to the ED after a 20-minute episode of dull, aching, left-sided chest discomfort while doing yard work an hour ago. The pain does not radiate and is not pleuritic. 
She has no thromboembolic risk factors, no hemoptysis, no calf swelling or pain, and no shortness of breath. She didn't have any nausea, sweating, dizziness, or syncope. She tells you that she's been having similar episodes on and off for the past two years. She's pain-free on arrival, and her vital signs are unremarkable. Her ECG shows normal sinus rhythm with nonspecific ST changes that are identical to previous ECGs. Chest x-ray and a single troponin are normal. When you go to reassess her, she says she feels fine and asks if she can go home and see her family doctor in a week or two. So, let's just uh, hack through this case a little bit. So, would you send this patient home to follow up with her family doctor? Would you admit her to a chest pain observation unit? Would you try to get her admitted for an angiogram? What's sort of your general approach to this kind of low-risk chest pain patient? I mean, I think the first thing that's important to realize is that at least at this point in her evaluation, we haven't ruled out an MI yet. And so she had a 20-minute long episode of chest pain. It sounds like it could be cardiac in origin. And certainly 20 minutes of ischemic pain is probably enough to cause a, a bump in troponin elevation. And so this is a patient who should probably absolutely be getting a second troponin. And when to do that troponin kind of depends on the, the troponin assay that you're using in your shop. If you're using a high sensitivity troponin, we'll get to this in a bit, you should probably be doing another troponin about two hours after the first one. If you're using a conventional troponin assay, there are some rapid diagnostic pathways that can let you rule out an MI with another troponin two to three hours after the first one. But a lot of these patients, if you're using a conventional assay, are still going to need serial troponins over six to eight hours to rule out an MI. And then you can make a decision. If those troponins are negative and she continues to be pain-free, then sending her home is probably a reasonable option. What you do in follow-up after that is another question. Yeah, I agree with Andrew's approach here. I still think we need to make sure we have a carefully crafted and complete history. So I'd ask you two questions, Anton. There's yard work and then there's yard work. So was she hauling kilos or heavy bags of fertilizer through the yard or was she uh, trimming her gardenias? And I'd still like to know, even though it doesn't radiate, were there any other associated symptoms? But um, if it was very heavy yard work, that might lower my threshold a little bit, but I still agree this could be an MI either way and needs the workup, as Andrew said, suggested. All right, we'll get into the details of the likelihood ratios for all the different historical factors, and we'll talk in detail how these historical factors and risk factors play into things like the heart pathway and then the troponins and all of that. I think it's important, though, first, before we get into all of that, to define the population who we're talking about. In other words, to define what low-risk chest pain is. So, Dr. McRae, what is low-risk chest pain? There's some guidelines that were published in circulation that defined low-risk chest pain or patients who are at low risk for ACS as patients who are hemodynamically stable, who don't have any textbook concerning features on history and physical exam, so not a clear unstable angina history, and who don't have any immediate objective evidence of myocardial injury on either their ECGs or serial biomarker testing. And what those criteria translate into are a patient who probably has an adverse risk of cardiac events in the 1% to 2% neighborhood at 30 days to follow up. 
what low risk chest pain is for us in actual practice is probably a little bit variable. I think if you asked emergency physicians, and there's been a number of surveys of emergency physicians of how low risk is acceptable to you, the number seems to vary between 0.5% and 2% in 30 days for adverse events. Jeff Klein's done some work with modeling more for PE, but I think it's applicable to chest pain that once you get down below a 2% risk threshold, the risks of harm from additional testing actually outweighs the risk of further testing for these patients. So you're looking for a population with no convincing evidence for myocardial ischemia that's probably suitable for discharge from the emergency department. Yeah, it's interesting how in Canada over the last 20, 30 years, I mean, Eddie, you've been practicing for what, like one year, two years? (laughs) 25. 25, all right. Over the last 25 years, when I started almost 20 years ago, it it was kind of standard 2%. That was kind of the risk for these kinds of patients. And it seems like that risk is in practice getting lower and lower and lower and lower and lower and lower, like where in some places it seems like it's zero, like it's just not acceptable to miss ACS. How do you explain that shift in culture? And, you know, like where do you think? we're kind of ultimately headed and what do you think is actually best for the patient? Well, I think one of the drivers of what we're seeing in terms of reduced risk tolerance is strangely enough, perhaps being driven by the patient safety movement. We know that uh, we are watching our bounce backs more carefully. We are more likely to hear about that case that you saw yesterday that came back. You know, we are of course concerned about patient outcomes, But we still have a pretty serious cultural problem expecting perfection from emergency physicians or all physicians. And we have to learn that by the pursuit of perfection, we may be actually doing more harm than good. And we need to be comfortable with the fact that a miss rate, whatever it be, is going to have to be acceptable in a busy practice And, you know, the medical legal climates are different in Canada and the U.S. And uh, we, of course, don't want to miss any diagnoses. But we also have to get around this idea that if we do miss something, that it's something that we will be shamed about. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a a really interesting comment you made, Dr. McRae, about Jeff Klein's work that once we're getting below a 2% risk, that the harms of all the testing will probably outweigh any benefit. We just hope that the patients can understand that and that the administrators can understand that and that the courts can understand that. Well, the good news is, folks, that you'll see as we go through this and talk about troponins and heart pathways that we're actually going to be able to safely discharge a lot of patients well below 2% risk, actually. We can get down to as low as 0.3% risk if we follow, for example, the heart pathway with high-sensitivity troponins. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's get into the nuances of history-taking in chest pain patients when it comes to ACS. We all know the classic symptoms of ACS. We're going to get deep into the heart score in a minute, but part of the heart score involves whether, based on history, you're either slightly suspicious, moderately suspicious, or highly suspicious for ACS. So that seems like a pretty nebulous point system there, but it just it brings up the importance of 
how important each historical factor is to weigh into that decision. So first, Dr. Lang, which kinds of patients are unlikely to present with classic symptoms? Anton, the populations that are most at risk for atypical presentations are women and patients with comorbidities, especially diseases which might alter their ability to communicate, sensory perceptions, and any other kind of neuropathies. Here at the Cape meeting, I had a chance to talk to Dr. Lisa Calder. She is the medical lead for research in emergency medicine at the Canadian Medical Protective Association. That's the body that provides malpractice support and protection for all emergency physicians and all physicians in Canada. And I spoke to her on this topic, and um, her emphasis was that there is a significant issue around missed ACS. There's a number of cases that they're looking at, many of which involve women because they do have atypical presentations. But invariably, uh, what we're also seeing, and I think this is going to be interesting for our, the rest of our discussion, that it's almost never or at least very rarely a breakdown in our technology and diagnostic pathways. It's always about a failure to consider. So the history taking is particularly important, but we have to just keep in mind that by an atypical presentation, we could mean a very wide spectrum of symptomatology, including pain in unusual locations, pain that's uh, very atypical or unusual in nature. It could be burning when we usually don't associate that with ACS. And patients may also have very unique ways of describing or rationalizing their symptoms and attributing it to something else that they may have been doing or may have experienced, which can throw us off track. So I think those are the populations that you really need to watch out for. The people with diabetes, for example, and uh, women, unfortunately, do have a different symptom profile, which should keep our index of suspicion particularly high. The point about the elderly is a valuable one. They don't necessarily experience the same classical symptoms. There's also the stereotypical of the much more stoic older patient. And they have comorbid diseases like chronic kidney disease and heart failure that put them at high risk for acute coronary syndromes. And so it certainly is important to keep an acute coronary syndrome in the back of your mind when you're evaluating uh, an elderly patient, especially an elderly comorbid patient who presents with a symptom set that might be an ACS mimic. Absolutely. I mean, just a few stats to sort of drive home the point that the rule for ACS presentation is atypical is typical. We kind of need that mindset. I mean, first of all, up to about a third of patients with ACS have no chest pain at all with the most frequent anginal equivalents in the order of prevalence being shortness of breath. And my understanding from a talk that Almamatu just gave at Cape actually was that over the age of 85, shortness of breath is way more likely to be the presenting complaint than chest pain. The second most frequent anginal equivalent in order of prevalence is weakness, generalized weakness. Then there's unusual fatigue, sweating, and lastly, our favorite, dizziness. So atypical is typical, and especially in women, diabetes, the elderly population, history of CHF, kidney disease, stroke. These are all patients that we have to be especially aware of. And I want to drive home that point that you made, Dr. Lang, that most of the missed cases, by far the vast majority of missed cases, at least in Canada, 
are just failure to consider the diagnosis in the first place. And as we'll see later on in the podcast, that we have these great pathways and high-sensitivity troponins that are actually really good at decreasing the risk to near zero. I think an important implication as our population is aging is that uh, as we're seeing more and more of the frail elderly coming in with acute functional decline and generalized weakness, it probably is a reasonable part of the standard workup is to add a troponin test. I think the challenge there is that especially in an elderly comorbid population, you can have patients with chronic heart failure, chronic kidney disease. So you're not ordering one troponin, you're ordering two or three. And so as long as, you know, part of considering ACS as a diagnosis is committing to doing the whole workup. And I think part of the message that we're going to try to send in this podcast is that, you know, there's this incredible tension between trying to reduce unnecessary testing, but at the same time trying to be sufficiently inclusive of the population that we're working up. So we're trying to reduce unnecessary testing, but promote appropriate testing in patients who need it. And herein lies the conundrum, which hopefully we'll be able to get through by the end of the podcast. We'll give some good practical take-home conclusions for. All right. So we know that atypical is typical. Let's talk specifically about the predictive value of specific historical features for ACS. Because again, if we want to use the heart score and figure out which patients we should be suspicious for ACS in the first place, we need to know how predictive each historical feature is. So Dr. McRae, what are the most predictive historical features for ACS? Probably the ones to be aware of most, sweating or diaphoresis, vomiting, and pain that radiates. Right. So the old saying that if they're sweating, you should be sweating? It's true. (laughs) And so there's a number of good reads. So the JAMA systematic review does this patient with chest pain have an acute coronary syndrome, the rational clinical exam. A number of the studies that have been validating high sensitivity troponins have also done secondary analyses looking at symptom frequency and predictiveness. And there does seem to be fairly consistent findings across all of these that diaphoresis, that nausea or vomiting are both strongly predictive of the presence of an ACS. Interesting findings about radiation. So radiation to both arms or radiation to right arm, which might not be the textbook definition, is highly predictive. And there's varying evidence on radiation to the left arm, which is the classic teaching. But you know, one study found no association with radiation to the left arm, but a couple of others have. So radiation of any kind is probably worth paying attention to. What about the negative predictive features? So Dr. Lang, you know, most of us are pretty aware of what those ones with the highest likelihood ratios are. What about the ones that'll decrease our likelihood? You know, there's the patient that has positional chest pain and pleuritic chest pain. I never really know to what degree that lowers my pretest probability. Yeah, those are definitely associated with low likelihood ratios. The fact that a pain is positional or pleuritic pinpoint sharp, very, very brief, like lasting seconds, those really lower your considerations for acute coronary syndrome. I always palpate the chest wall. If I can elicit tenderness, and it's the same tenderness that brought them in, not just me poking them, that also will reduce the probability of ACS by quite a bit. We're looking at likelihood ratios of 0.2 to 0.3. So if you're 
looking at a pretest. Pro- I don't have the Fagan nomogram in front of me, but if you're looking at a pretest probability of 10% walking through the door, that alone will take you down to five or four. Still, possibly though, not enough to avoid further testing. Okay, so fair enough to say that there's no historical or combination of historical features that are good enough to rule in or rule out ACS, but you're just shifting your pretest probability based on on those different numbers. I like the nuance, and it's an important nuance about chest wall tenderness, because you know inevitably, if my resident says they have chest wall tenderness, and then I go in there and I ask them, does this very light pressing on your chest reproduce the exact same pain that you had that you were describing in your history? Almost all the time they say no. Because of course, if you press hard enough on anyone's chest, it's going to hurt them. It's going to be tender. So that's an important nuance. So just to review there, the things that have pretty decent positive likelihood ratios that will increase your likelihood of ACS are radiation to the right arm, both arms, exertional chest pain associated with diaphoresis, associated with nausea or vomiting, and described as pressure is another one. Things that decrease the likelihood, pleuritic, positional, sharp in nature, and non-exertional. Now, what about the severity of chest pain? So, you know, typically you've got this crescendo onset over a few minutes that peaks at maybe a five or a six or a seven out of 10. But certainly there's patients who can have silent MIs, atypical, of course. And then there's patients that I've seen that they're kind of screaming aortic dissection and they end up being an MI. Does the severity of the chest pain have any predictive value for ACS? I don't think so. There's a lot of heterogeneity there. And as you've said, uh, there are patients with only minimal or moderate symptoms. I think we rarely run for opioids when patients are having acute ischemic chest pain in the sense that it's rarely that 10 out of 10 pain. It's not going to be the kind that will have them uh, screaming in discomfort that maybe want to make you reconsider your diagnosis even. But um, severity isn't particularly helpful. You know, anyone with clinical experience will know that you can get a wide range of descriptions from an uncomfortable heaviness to a balloon inflating in the chest. All of these things are uh, certainly can represent ACS. Let's talk a little bit about ACS risk factors. Now, our patient in the case has diabetes and hypertension, so clearly has major risk factors for ACS. Now, I've seen a lot of MIs with zero risk factors and lots of sort of nothing chest pain with lots of risk factors and kind of everything in between. So the heart score includes the number of classic risk factors. So that kind of suggests that they're important. However, I've also heard on the flip side that really the only really predictive risk factors are family history and diabetes. So how predictive are the classic risk factors for ACS in ruling in or out ACS from the ED? They're certainly associated, but each individual risk factor, other than diabetes and family history, probably isn't strongly predictive enough one way or the other, especially in patients older than 50, because a lot of them have hypertension and hypercholesterolemia at that age anyway. So it's mostly in patients who are younger than 40, who have no risk factors, are probably at a lower risk overall. 
patients under 40 who have a lot of risk factors are probably at higher risk than the average 40-year-old, and you should pay attention to those. So I don't think we can ignore them. It's just that other than diabetes and family history, there isn't a single risk factor, traditional risk factor, that can budge your pretest probability one way or the other. All right. So classic cardiac risk factors then might be actually more useful for younger patients, if I'm hearing you correctly. So if a younger patient has zero risk factors, that makes it very unlikely that they're going to rule in for ACS. And if they have tons of risk factors, that really should be changing your pretest probability. Whereas the 85-year-old, you know, whether they smoke or have high blood pressure, is not really going to shift your pretest probability too much. Is that is that fair? An 85-year-old smoker compared to an 85-non-year smoker is going to be kind of have the same degree of worry in my book. All right. And Dr. Lang, what about non-traditional risk factors like cocaine, HIV, lupus? Like all these things have been associated with an increased risk for MI and ACS. How do these kind of non-traditional risk factors play into your decision-making for ACS? Patients with these non-traditional risk factors and comorbidities are at increased risk of diagnostic error and anchoring. So if someone has a history of pericarditis when they were had their first lupus flare-up 10 years ago, we might get caught again by misinterpreting their current EKG as being recurrent pericarditis when in fact this time around it's a STEMI. Good point. Getting back to the cocaine, my understanding is that for chronic cocaine users, they actually do have a higher prevalence of atherosclerotic disease. And I've heard people, you know, add 10 or 20 years onto their age to try and estimate their risk. Whereas the person who's, you know, a cocaine binger occasionally, then it's about vasospasm. I think that may be true. I think really though, the the question that we need to, our domain in the emergency department looking after these patients is what does their ECG show and what does their troponin show? And if they have high risk ECG or troponin findings, what they do after admission in terms of does this patient need an angiogram or do they assume it's coronary vasospasm and how do we investigate those patients? That's an upstairs decision. Our main priority in the emergency department is to actually correctly identify patients who are having a cocaine-related acute coronary syndrome. Okay. I guess the bottom line with cocaine in particular is that we know that it's a risk factor, so that should maybe increase our pre-test probability, but we're going to be working them up the same way that we would anyone else. All right, let's do a quick review here. We miss ACS and send people home that bounce back with MIs because we don't consider the diagnosis in the first place. Missed ACS is not so much about the wrong clinical decision rule or misinterpretation of troponin, but rather a failure to consider ACS on the differential diagnosis. What about history? The rule is atypical is typical. First, up to one-third of patients with ACS have no chest pain at all. And the most frequent anginal equivalents in order of prevalence are shortness of breath, generalized weakness, unusual fatigue, sweating, and dizziness. And the risk factors for atypical presentations include older patients, especially over 85 years of age, women, diabetes, a history of stroke, or CHF. What about the likelihood ratios for the different symptoms? The associated symptoms most predictive of MI are ED-observed sweating, vomiting, radiation to both arms or 
to the right arm and exertional chest pain. The historical features with the best negative likelihood ratios include pleuritic chest pain, positional pain, pain described as sharp, and pain that's reproducible with palpation. Remember that severity of pain is not predictive. Now, how important are classical cardiac risk factors? Well, the classic cardiac risk factors are probably more useful in younger patients, those less than 40 years old. In older patients, classic cardiac risk factors aren't really very predictive at all. But the two risk factors that are probably the most predictive are family history of premature MI and diabetes. The important non-traditional risk factors, especially in young patients, are chronic renal failure, HIV, cocaine or amphetamine use, chronic steroid use, and lupus. Let's talk a little bit about ECGs. Now, we're not going to do a Stephen Smith-style deep dive into ECGs on a podcast. It wouldn't really make sense without the visuals. But I want to talk a little bit about ECGs and just highlight a few key points in relation to low-risk chest pain. So we see lots of chest pain patients with, quote, nonspecific ST changes, and they generally seem to be ignored. But my understanding is that nonspecific ST changes are actually part of the heart score. So they, therefore, I'm assuming, must mean something in terms of risk. So as opposed to a pristine normal ECG, nonspecific ECG changes actually do portend some kind of risk. What is really the significance of so-called nonspecific ST changes? I think you summed it up nicely is that it's, you know, it's probably part of the heart score for a reason because there is a higher risk of acute coronary syndrome in patients with chest pain who have nonspecific changes compared to those who have normal ECGs. Not every patient with an acute coronary syndrome is going to have clearly diagnostic ECG changes. We'll talk a little bit about the ones that we need to keep an eye out for, but nonspecific changes by themselves shouldn't really change our pretest probability one way or the other. They shouldn't reassure us, certainly, even if they're not clearly diagnostic of an ACS. So we should maintain our, our vigilance in patients who have nonspecific ECG findings. All right. And I guess just like any other patient who you're worried about, you know, serial ECGs can often give you the answer. And timely access to previous ECGs. All right. So suffice to say that you shouldn't totally ignore nonspecific changes, that it won't by itself really shift your pretest probability too much. Very important serial ECGs and looking at old ECGs. I want to get onto some of the sort of ECG patterns for ACS that are beyond the usual territorial ST changes that we should be on the lookout for. So let's just take turns. What are the most important ECG patterns we need to know about that should trigger a consideration for cardiac ischemia? Dr. Lang, you go first. Well, the one that always raises my hair on the back of my neck is the dynamic changes. So if we can document ST depression with pain that resolves when they are pain-free or after a nitro spray, I think that in of itself is quite disconcerting. And based on some previous work, I think that identifies a high-risk patient. Yeah, certainly the, the patient who has an abnormal change on their pre-hospital ECG that normalizes by the time you get to the emergency department, or a patient who's having on and off pain episodes in the ED with ECG changes, you have a diagnosis. That patient has an acute coronary syndrome. As far as other ones that we need to keep an eye out for, especially in the patient who is now pain-free, 
the ones that come to my mind are things like Wellen syndrome and De Winter's T waves that have very recognizable patterns that everyone should be aware of and be vigilant for. All right, if you just quickly kind of go over for us, we'll have some pictures in the in the show notes. The De Winter wave and the Wellens, what are the changes there that you're looking out for? Right. So De Winter's T waves, you see in a small number of patients who have a proximal LED occlusion. And what you see in V1 through V4 is that you see an upsloping ST depression with tall symmetric V waves. And you may see some ST elevation in AVR and AVL. All right. So that's De Winter waves and uh, Wellens, just to remind our, our listeners. So those are often deep symmetrical T waves in V1 through V4, or sometimes you see biphasic T waves in V1 through V4 in patients who are pain-free, who have had, when they have are actually having chest pain, you don't see those deeply inverted T waves. So it's kind of a paradoxical finding. You often expect to see inverted T waves when someone's having acute ischemia. This is kind of the opposite. And so it's something you need to be on the lookout for and highly suspicious for someone who's having an acute coronary syndrome. Yeah, we used to call that pseudonormalization, or maybe it's still known as that, but unexpected improvement with pain. All right, yeah, the one that I've learned about recently, again from AMOL, is the uh, FLIP-T and or ST depression in AVL. So if you look at AVL, which is one of those leads that's typically kind of ignored almost, if you just see an isolated FLIP-T with or without the slightest bit of ST depression, that can certainly be an early sign for an evolving inferior STEMI. So that's an especially important person to do tight serial ECGs on and looking out for that inferior STEMI. So those are a few of the patterns. Wellens, De Winters, an isolated flip T and or ST depression in AVL, and of course dynamic changes are extremely important. Let's move on to sort of the main chunk of our podcast here and Dr. McRae's specialty, and that is troponins. Most labs have a troponin cutoff above which an MI should be considered ruled in and below which an MI should be considered ruled out. But of course, a multitude of entities can cause elevated troponins, PE, CHF, renal failure, sepsis, myocarditis, just to name a few. How should we be thinking of troponin in terms of risk stratifying our chest pain patients? So troponin's an indicator of myocardial injury. So it doesn't matter what the actual pathophysiology behind it is. If you have injury to the myocardium, you're going to see a change in your troponin concentration. And so probably the most important question that you should ask yourself when you see a patient who has an abnormal troponin concentration is is this history compatible with an acute MI or acute coronary syndrome? Or is there something else going on that could be leading to this myocardial injury? Some patients have chronically elevated troponins from heart failure, patients with chronic kidney disease. But when you're taking care of patients with other clinical entities like sepsis, PE, there's pretty clearly some sort of supply-demand mismatch going on and that troponin elevation that you're seeing is a clear marker for higher risk of bad outcomes in these patients. And so the cause of the troponin is something that you need to be paying pretty close attention to and asking yourself, why is this happening? Is this an acute coronary syndrome? Or if I'm taking care of a patient with an alternative diagnosis, this is a higher risk patient. 
What's the danger of thinking of a troponin as a binary test? So with conventional troponins, so the, the assays that have been used in the United States up until high sensitivity assays have been approved, and a lot of places in Canada are still using conventional troponin assays, it's a pretty good binary test provided that you use it properly. If your troponin concentration is elevated above the detectable limit of a conventional assay, you have myocardial injury. You know, you do not pass go, do not collect $200, your patient has myocardial injury. And provided that the test was done a sufficiently long period of time after the onset of their symptoms, if your troponin level is undetectable, MI is probably ruled out. And so in that sense, it's a pretty good binary test. But you can't just use it at any time. You have to use it at a particular period of time in relation to the patient's symptoms. So if you see that elevation, it's abnormal and has pretty high specificity for myocardial injury. But you don't actually achieve acceptable sensitivity until a defined period of time from the onset of the symptoms. And that varies with the troponin assay that you're using. Martin Than, Louise Cullen from New Zealand and Australia have developed some rapid diagnostic pathways using conventional troponins that rely on a normal ECG, a TIMI score of zero, and two normal conventional troponins done two hours apart. That excludes MI with excellent sensitivity in up to 40% of patients. And so that's one way that you can actually cut down your serial testing time with conventional troponins that approaches the speed that you can achieve with high sensitivity troponins. High sensitivity troponins are a completely different kettle of fish and using them to their full potential requires using them in a completely different way than people are probably used to. All right. So I I think the difference between the conventional troponins and the high sensitivity troponins will come out in our our discussion to follow. I want to back up a little bit and talk about the value of a rising or falling pattern of troponins as opposed to the actual value of troponin. To what degree is it true that a rising or falling troponin is probably more important than the actual value itself of the troponin? I think it's absolutely true, especially for patients that have chronically elevated troponins, like patients with kidney disease and heart failure. We often focus on, oh, it's a binary test, so the troponin is elevated, or what we, you know, we call it a positive and negative troponin, we probably shouldn't be thinking about it that way. If you think of the, the universal definition of, of MI, a myocardial infarction is diagnosed in someone who has symptoms that are consistent with a myocardial infarction, who either has ECG changes or troponin concentrations that are showing a rising or falling pattern above the 99th percentile of normal. So it's not the fact that your troponin's above the 99th percentile of normal that diagnoses your MI, it's the rising and falling pattern because that's what happens with troponin concentrations when you have an MI. The overall positive predictive value of a troponin for ACS is only 56%. So we know that it's highly nonspecific, that it can happen all these other things. However, it is a marker of badness. No matter what the cause of its elevation, those patients you need to worry about, even if they're not an MI slash ACS. You know, I do see a lot of, especially when you're consulting to internal medicine, it seems, oh, that's troponitis or troponemia or whatever you call it. And it's kind of almost trivializing this fact that the higher your troponin, the higher your mortality. Well, I think what Andrew is saying is that 
the delta is a great way to mitigate the poor specificity of a single value. So when you see that rise or fall, it's an indication of active disease, whether in resolution or on the upswing, and it can really help you distinguish true positive from false positive. People who are in chronic renal failure, have chronic coronary disease, are very elderly, they're going to be grumbling at levels that are higher than the upper limit of normal. But only when they are struck with an acute ACS will you see the delta. Yeah, it's the rising and falling pattern that's diagnostic of the MI to the point of the patients with other conditions that have elevated troponin concentrations. I think you're right that troponinemia or troponinitis is probably a a trivializing term. Whether that changes your management in any significant way, it's hard to say. So we know that patients with sepsis or pneumonia who have a new elevation in troponin, even if it's not a rising or falling pattern, they're at higher risk. I'm not sure that's going to change anything that you do for those patients necessarily because they're probably sick enough to come into the hospital anyway. For PE patients, that might certainly drive you to admit those patients rather than trying to treat them as an outpatient or at least obtain some ancillary testing to take a look at their RV function. All right, so we've established that the change in troponin and the trending of the troponin is more important than the actual value itself. Then it brings up the question, well, what is a significant change? So I've heard a 20% change, no matter what kind of troponin you're using, a 20% change is considered significant, and that should rule in. And then there's the absolute value change. And of course, that'll be different depending on what kind of troponin you're using. What is the best way to utilize the delta troponin? I think it depends on whether you're using a conventional or high-sensitivity troponin. Just because if you're using a conventional troponin, you're not going to detect all the myocardial injury cases just because you don't. it doesn't detect low enough concentrations of troponins to see all of those clinically important changes. So you may not see a quantifiable delta, but what you'll see is a patient with an initially who has a troponin that's lower than the limit of detection, their second one or their third one is above the limit of detection. And that's probably a clinically significant change. You just can't put a number on it because you don't know what the number was on the first one. It was just less than 0.01 or whatever your lab reports. With high sensitivity troponins, where we actually can measure very low troponin concentrations, the bulk of the evidence would seem to indicate that absolute deltas or absolute troponin changes are probably more discriminative than relative changes, particularly when it comes to ruling out MI. Certainly a 20% change is probably significant, but when you're dealing with units like nanograms per liter and you're dealing with very low troponin concentrations, you're probably better off hanging your hat on absolute troponin changes than uh, relative deltas. Okay, so can you give us some examples of what those absolute changes are. So for, at my shop, they use a high sensitivity troponin T. And I understand that across Canada, that's been used in many, many centers. So in that example, high sensitivity troponin T, what is the absolute value that you're looking for to call it positive? So it depends on how often or how far apart you're doing the the tests. But if you're doing a, a two hour serial troponins, With that particular assay, if you're seeing a 10 nanogram per liter change over two hours, that's probably sufficient to rule in. What amazes me, actually, is if you probably ask 
you know, the 50 docs at North York General, well, what is a, a positive delta troponin, two-hour troponin? They'll all probably say something different. So this is great to have sort of a definitive answer on this. So 20% change is pretty good, but what's probably better is an absolute change. As an example, high-sensitivity troponin T, a 10 nanogram change is a positive significant change. We'll have the rest of the absolute numbers in the show notes. Could you just clarify for us exactly why the absolute number is probably better than the percentage or relative 20% number? Sure. So take two hypothetical patients, for example. You have a patient who comes in and their initial troponin concentration, we're talking about high sensitivity troponin T here, if their initial troponin concentration is 5 nanograms per liter and you're hanging your hat on a delta of 20% to rule in, then if that patient's next troponin value is 6 nanograms per liter, they're ruled in. When in reality, that one nanogram per liter change is within the variation of the assay, and it probably doesn't reflect any actual real myocardial injury. So what you're going to do if you rely on a relative delta is you're going to overestimate risk in low-risk patients. And at the same time, in high-risk patients who have chronic baseline elevator troponin concentrations, you might miss them by actually relying on a relative delta too. What a great pearl. I love that. I agree with Andrew, but I would point out, though, that the delta is rarely a diagnostic conundrum. So especially our experience in Calgary around troponin T is that if you get, say, a value of 18 back after that first assay in someone with some comorbidities or who may be sitting at that level, that second troponin is either usually going to be within a few nanograms of that first value or it will shoot up significantly if you are, in fact, dealing with an NSTEMI or an ACS. So important considerations, but it's rarely a dilemma. If, let's say, though, on that second troponin, you're looking at going from 18 to 24, and you're not sure if you're on an upslope or it's really just hovering around the same value, you might probably want to get a third troponin value to help clarify. So this ability of troponin to allow you to see what's going on and improve the specificity of the assay is, I think, one of the reasons why we have not seen cardiology consultation go up dramatically, or it hasn't gone up at all. It's gone down, in fact, in Calgary since we introduced the high-sensitivity troponin value. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually. I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of practitioners in the States were worried about was that the transition towards high-sensitivity troponins would mean that you know all their patients would be having these positive troponins, and then they'd end up getting all referred and many of them admitted and that the admission rates would go up. So you're actually saying that so far, and based on your data, actually the admission rates go down, that it's all good. Well, this could be very contextual and may reflect the medical legal climate that the study is being performed in. So while absolutely in Calgary, high sensitivity troponin T, despite our concerns around increasing admissions and CCU consults in the emergency department, the impact has been actually on the contrary and without a downside. We've not seen an increase in bounce backs or missed MIs. However, if you translate that to a setting where the medical legal climate is different and risk thresholds are different, then all of those patients who we're seeing at 18 or 20, which is above the limit of normal, but are stable at that level, 
may actually be brewing or sitting on some stable CAD. And while we do not feel the onus is on us to make the diagnosis of coronary disease in that individual who's in their 80s and seems to be doing fine otherwise, it may be a different story in the U.S. So I cannot say for sure whether the introduction of troponin T will have the same effect in an American setting as it has had, at least in our Canadian setting. Yeah, we worked really hard to develop a troponin pathway that actually emphasized using the test in a different way than we had before. And so using it in a two-hour serial pathway with unique different cutoffs for ruling in compared to ruling out, as opposed to treating troponin as a binary test that if it's positive, you need to consult CCU. Really, the implementing it successfully depends on using the test in a very different way than people are used to. And to kind of sum up our experience with high-sensitivity troponin, we can do more with it and we can do it faster, but we have to use it differently and we have to think a little bit harder while we're doing it. All right, that's all good. This will be especially pertinent to those folks in the U.S. who, my understanding is that most of them are still using conventional troponins, but there's probably going to be more and more of a shift towards the high-sensitivity troponins in Canada. Most centers are already using the high-sensitivity troponins. So, can you just kind of review for us there what the difference is between the conventional troponin and the high-sensitivity troponin, and then we'll talk about whether there's really any difference between the high-sensitivity troponin T and the high-sensitivity troponin I. I mean, it's pretty confusing to a lot of us with all these different kinds of troponins. Sure. I mean, so high-sensitivity assays detect the exact same troponin molecules as the previous generation troponin assays. It's just that they can detect and accurately detect much lower concentrations. So by definition, to be considered a high-sensitivity assay, you have to be able to detect circulating troponin in 50% of normal healthy individuals. And so by definition, half of the patients that you see, or probably more, are going to have detectable troponin concentrations, which is very different than the conventional troponin assays that people may be used to using, where the vast majority of patients will have undetectable troponin concentrations, and you only start to get worried if you see a concentration above the, the limit of detection. And what that means is that we need to use high-sensitivity troponins very differently from the previous generation conventional troponin assays. So we can see clinically important changes in troponin concentrations much sooner in an ED evaluation, and it changes the way that we do serial troponin testing too. So with conventional troponin assays, you would do serial troponins you know, up to at least six hours after the onset of their pain because that's the time it took for those assays to detect rises in troponin with myocardial injury. What's different about the high-sensitivity troponin assays is that it essentially disconnects your serial testing from the timing of the patient's symptoms. So provided that the patient comes in with at least three hours from the onset of your symptoms, what you're going to do is do serial troponin assays two hours apart. And what you're looking for is a clinically significant change or the absence of a clinically significant change over that two-hour period. And that's what the delta troponin is that you're looking for. So to rule out, you're looking for two troponin assays that are below the, the 99th percentile and that you're not seeing a, a clinically significant change. Whereas to rule in, if you see at least one of them that's over a dramatically elevated concentration, then you can be pretty confident that that patient's had myocardial injury. 
What about the difference between a troponin T versus a troponin I, high sensitivity troponin? Is there really any practical difference that we need to know about? From an emergency physician's perspective, probably not. There are validated rapid diagnostic algorithms that have been published for all of the high sensitivity troponin assays that are either available or will soon be available on on the market. In terms of the actual performance, one versus the other, troponin I might be slightly less affected by kidney function or other things like lipemia or elevated biotin concentrations. But from a, a practical perspective, not they're not sufficiently different in a way that we should prefer one versus the other. There's validated diagnostic algorithms for both that work very well. Great. So from a practical point of view, whether it's troponin T or troponin I, high sensitivity doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, we don't need to be shouting in the streets demanding one assay versus the other. All right. Yeah. Now, in a journal jam we did way back with Andrew Worster, we talked about the utility of a single high-sensitivity troponin in ruling out MI. Is a single high-sensitivity troponin enough in, let's say, like really low-risk patients? I mean, do you advocate using a single troponin ever, or should we always be using a delta two-hour troponin? For a lot of patients, you can. The key thing is when you're taking a history, you have to make sure that the patient's at least three hours from the time of their symptom onset. Ah, and so that's so key. That's key. And they have to have a normal ECG. And if they're at least three hours from symptom onset, and if they have a normal ECG, if their high sensitivity troponin concentration is undetectable using that assay, so with the troponin T, it's less than five. With the, some of the troponin eyes, it's going to be less than three or less than six. Again, the concentrations can be in the show notes. That if it's undetectable and they have a normal ECG, you're done. You don't need to do any more serial troponin assays. That will rule out MI. There's been, at least for troponin T, there's been two meta-analyses now showing superb sensitivity for ruling out MI with a single troponin without the need for additional serial testing. And that can rule out 30 to 40% of patients. Wow. Okay. So just the really important nuances there, it has to be at least three hours of pain and you have to have a pristine normal ECG plus one single high sensitivity trope. You're done. You've ruled out MI. Ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, your patient has a massive PE. Yeah. Okay. That's three hours since the onset of onset pain. Onset of pain. Not yeah. three hours of pain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. So far, we've been assuming that a two-hour delta troponin is the way to go, but there's all kinds of algorithms that include a one-hour delta troponin, a three-hour delta troponin, and they're all different based on whether it's a conventional troponin or a high-sensitivity troponin. Are there any patients where you'd extend the delta to three hours? I mean, is three hours any better than two hours? Not from what we've seen. There is some emerging evidence that, you know, the the one-hour troponin testing pathways have worked really well in their derivation cohorts and in a couple of validation cohorts. But my concern is that the deltas that they're advocating, so the rule-in delta and the rule-out delta are very, very close to each other within the range of, of the variation of the assay. So you might misclassify patients just based on the variation of the assay alone. So a rule-out delta of 2 nanograms per liter and a rule-in of 4 nanograms per liter, that's not really different in actual practice. So we would recommend using a 2-hour pathway for high-sensitivity troponins with appropriate rule-in and rule-out deltas. 
and that just gives patients an extra hour to declare themselves and the deltas are a little bit further apart so you can be much more confident when you're actually ruling in or ruling out a patient that you're not misclassifying them just based on lab variation. There doesn't seem to be a huge advantage to three hours versus two hours. So in our practice, we use two hours. Now, all this talk about how amazing these high-sensitivity troponins are and how their negative predictive values are like 99%, that brings up the question, why do we even need these risk stratification scores like the heart score or the heart pathway? I mean, why not just take all comers with chest pain who you've ruled out other things, you suspect ACS for whatever reason, do an ECG, either a single troponin based on what we were talking about before or a delta two hour troponin. And then you don't even need a pathway. Why isn't it just ECG and troponin? Right. So remember that what you're doing with the troponin is ruling in or ruling out MI. And so the question is in the high sensitivity troponin era, does unstable angina even still exist? And the answer is yes. So you still need to take a good history. You still need to be very good at interpreting ECGs. And there are some patients, probably less in the high-sensitivity troponin era, that have an acute coronary syndrome or unstable angina that aren't going to be detected by high-sensitivity troponin testing because they don't have actual myocardial necrosis. They have unstable angina, and they're still at reasonably high risk. And so it's important to detect those patients using some sort of structured clinical risk assessment or you know, at least start by taking a very good history. The question is, can we push the envelope even further and use high-sensitivity troponin testing to prognosticate who's at high risk of MACE or who's at high risk of adverse cardiac events in the coming 30 days to help us make disposition decisions around who needs additional testing or not? And the answer is probably... We're not quite there yet in terms of knowing what troponin cutoffs will let us completely say this patient doesn't need any testing at all. Although the, the undetectable troponin at three hours is, is pretty good at identifying patients who probably don't need testing. The reality is those, that those rapid roulette strategies are only going to apply to about 40 to 60% of patients. So there's still going to be a group of patients that you're going to need to do some kind of structured risk assessment on when you're making a decision whether to send them for additional testing or not. All right. Yeah. Those are really important kind of nuances. Before we move on to the actual risk stratification pathways and the details of the heart score and how to use them properly, I want to ask one more question about troponins, and that is Dr. Lang, what are some of the sort of operational impacts of transitioning from the regular troponin to the high-sensitivity troponin? That's been a really good news story for uh, us in Calgary, at least, and I presume at some of the other Canadian centers that have moved in this direction. We were actually really fearful of the poor specificity of single values. We were aware that troponin being so sensitive would have to compromise on specificity and that you would see bumps in uh, a variety of patients with a variety of conditions. And as much as our cardiology and internal medicine colleagues were pushing back against referrals in the emergency department that were based primarily on the troponin value, that that issue was going to become even worse and could even grind our emergency department to a halt. 
So we invested, as Andrew mentioned earlier, really careful approach to uh, troponin testing, limited to some degree who could order it off the bat, meaning uh, whether it could be part of a nursing triage protocol. And the results have been quite exceptional. We have, on the contrary, improved our resource utilization, reduced cardiac consultations, reduced our length of stay for chest pain patients because we're now doing two-hour rule-outs rather than the previous six. And as far as I can tell, whether it's from the analytics that we do, we are not seeing an increase in bounce backs. And as the department head, I'm copied on every major complaint or concern that comes through the department. And of course, we were missing MIs, but we're not missing MIs as a result of the failure of troponin to detect them. It's usually a more endemic issue, which is failure to consider ACS in someone presenting with atypical symptoms. Again, that theme coming up. Very interesting. All right. So in case your admin people tell you that high sensitivity troponins will cause more problems, you can refer them to Dr. Lang to convince them otherwise. <laughs> Let's do another quick review. A few ECG pearls. Number one, non-specific T-wave changes are not benign. They're in the heart score, and findings like isolated T-wave inversion in lead 3 or V1 do actually confer an increased likelihood of MACE at 30 days. Number two, the winter waves are concerning for a proximal LAD lesion. Know how to recognize the winter waves. Number three, Wellens syndrome. Remember that the inverted or biphasic T-waves that you see in Wellens in V1 to V4 may actually normalize with the chest pain. And lastly, that isolated T and or ST depression in AVL may be an early sign of an inferior STEMI. All right, high-sensitivity troponins. Now, first, troponin is an indicator of myocardial injury independent of cause, and an elevated troponin increases the risk of death regardless of the cause. So don't use the terms troponinitis or troponinemia because they're trivializing and can be dangerous. Now, the key to taking advantage of the high-sensitivity troponin is not to treat it as a binary test. The rising and falling pattern of the troponin is underappreciated and probably more important than the actual value of the troponin concentration itself in terms of the specificity of the diagnosis of MI. We maximize the utility of the accuracy of the test by using different high-sensitivity troponin cutoffs for ruling in and different cutoff for ruling out MI and for prognostication. And based on Canadian data, the fear of high-sensitivity troponins having lower specificity leading to more admissions is actually unfounded. In fact, the Canadian experience is that high-sensitivity troponins decrease length of stay and admissions without missing more MIs. Now, there's really about three ways that you can use these high-sensitivity troponins. Number one is the single troponin. So one completely undetectable high-sensitivity troponin done after three hours of chest pain onset plus a pristine normal ECG rules out MI and reduces MACE to a very low risk, probably below 2%, and that's a threshold that patients are probably safe to go home at. The second way is to add the heart score to a single high-sensitivity troponin, and the MACE then lowers to less than about 1%. Then there's the delta-2-hour troponin. 
So for patients whose onset of pain is less than three hours, you need to do two troponins. And those two troponins should be done two hours apart. If the delta of that two-hour troponin T, for example, is greater than 10 nanograms per liter or greater than a 20% change, that's a rule in. And probably the absolute change is better to use than the percentage change. For two troponins done two hours apart, plus the heart score, MACE drops to less than about half a percent. And remember that our experts don't recommend using a one-hour or a three-hour delta troponin. Next, we're going to talk about why the heart score is probably the best one to use in the emergency department. Let's get on to the risk stratification pathways. Now, we've been talking a little bit and referring to the heart pathway, but of course, there's the Timmy, there's Grace, there's EDAX, there's the Vancouver chest pain rule, there's the North American chest pain rule. There's a lot of different rules. It can be very confusing for people. It seems like heart is the most popular. Dr. Lang, is heart the best? If it is the best, why should we be using it? Many of these risk scores include a biomarker component and were validated before the generation of the fifth generation high sensitivity troponins, which would suggest to me that if they were repeated again in today's setting, they would perform even better. The other thing that I think we need to think about is that very few of these rules were compared against clinical gestalt or empiric judgments of whether a patient was at high risk or not. I do have a predilection for the heart score. I think it's been validated quite nicely. It also has a great story behind it. Uh, Barbara Backus is a uh, physician in the Netherlands who derived and validated it several years ago while she was an emergency medicine resident, and I think that's a pretty impressive uh, narrative. So I would tip the hat to the heart score, but there's so much overlap between the elements of the heart score and the elements of some of the other scores that you mentioned that I don't know if there's a dramatic clinically significant difference between these. I think of all the the scores out there, heart probably has the most robust body of evidence supporting it. Its accuracy for predicting six-week MACE has been validated in multiple settings. There are now several systematic reviews and meta-analyses of, of the heart score performance, both with conventional troponin assays as well as with high-sensitivity troponin assays. A number of the other risk scores perform very, very well. They just don't have the sheer volume of studies behind them the way that, that heart score has developed this huge body of literature support in just the last few years. So the heart score predicts 30-day MACE major adverse cardiac events, which includes death, MI, and revascularization. Now, the revascularization part is the part that makes me a little bit uneasy because it's really not an outcome we care all that much about because there's really, if you dig deep into it, there's really no good evidence that for low-risk patients that do get revascularization, that it actually prevents death or MI. Yet the majority of research that's done in this area uses MACE as an outcome. I do understand that there are some studies out there that only looked at MI and death rate. Could you tell us a little bit about those studies so that we can kind of get rid of that whole vascularization kind of muddying issue? So yeah, I think 
you're right. The the vast majority of the time, the the outcome of interest in a lot of these studies has been MACE. It's nice to have seen a meta-analysis done by the group in Ottawa that looked at MI and death specifically for the heart score. And what they did, I thought was actually quite interesting, is traditionally the cutoff for defining someone as low risk has been a heart score of three or less. And when you're looking at outcomes of just MI and death separately, you can actually push that envelope and go to four or less. And you still see a very, very good sensitivity for prediction of MI and mortality. Wow. Okay. So if you're using MACE the way most of the literature is suggesting we use it, I consider as three or less as low risk. So if anything, not including the revascularization actually would make us more confident in ruling out. Now, of course, the heart score isn't perfect. Nothing is. What's really the biggest misunderstanding do you find with the heart score? Yeah. So the bottom line is that we just need to think about when and in whom should the heart score or any risk score for that matter be used. So patients who have high risk troponin findings don't need a risk score. They need an angiogram. Same thing with patients who have high risk ECG findings. You have a diagnosis. You don't need a risk score for those patients. And on the other end of the coin, patients with normal ECGs and very low risk, high sensitivity troponin findings probably don't need a risk score either. And they certainly probably don't need downstream testing. So you can probably just send those patients home. The real value of a risk score is in patients who are still a bit of a diagnostic dilemma after a thorough ED workup. All right. So it's really that middle group that the heart score is is really helpful for. Now, that being said, all these scores have limitations. What are the kind of specific limitations of the heart score? I think the limitations is that it's a nine-point score, and some very important features can get either overemphasized or underemphasized just by the way that the score is calculated. So you can have a patient with a dramatically elevated troponin concentration who has the exact same score as a patient with a normal troponin and several risk factors. So clearly those two patients are very, very different, but the, the score might treat them the same. And so the risk there is by relying solely on the score and not realizing that things like troponin and ECG are probably more important to the diagnosis than some of the other components in the heart score, by solely relying on the number of the heart score, you can get led down the garden path. All right, let's get back to sort of absolute numbers in terms of risk after someone's gone through the heart pathway. So I've heard numbers all over the place, like a miss rate of 4% with the heart score, which is not acceptable by almost anybody. Then I've heard that the heart score is good to rule out less than 2%. And then I've also heard that if you do you know, a single undetectable troponin decreases it to 1%, and then delta troponins will decrease that even further. I've heard numbers as low as 0.3%. So can you just kind of just make sense for us what the actual numbers are so that each individual physician can then make a decision based on what risk, what number below which they're willing to, you know, send the patient home, for example. 
So if we kind of agree from a starting point that an acceptable risk of six-week acute coronary syndrome, so six-week risk of death or MI and even revascularization is somewhere less than 2%. Most of the heart study validation papers have indicated that a score of zero to three gets you there. So it doesn't really matter whether risk is 0.4 or whether it's 1.4. If you're agreeing that less than two is your target, then the score of zero to three gets you there. The miss rate in any study is going to be affected by the actual risk or event rate in the population. And some of those studies had very, very low event rates in their population. So that's going to bias their findings to very good performance. But if you're applying the heart score to patients after serial ECG and troponin testing, and you've ruled out MI, they're independent of their heart score, their six-week MACE risk, their risk of death and subsequent MI is going to be very, very low to start with. So you can be pretty confident using the heart score that if it's zero to three, they're probably going to be fine. The danger is that if they have a, a heart score of four to five, are you actually overestimating risk in those patients that you've ruled out an MI using troponin and ECG testing? Well, that's interesting. Once we get into the middle numbers, so the four and five, you had mentioned that with high sensitivity troponins, you might be able to go as high as four. I understand there was a study actually out of California that was published in 2018 that looked at 30-day mortality and MI, and that study suggested that patients with a score as high as five could be safely discharged. Now, they must have a different prevalence of MI in their population or something. I mean, I can't imagine sending you know, a heart score of five, any which way you slice it with a heart score, that seems to me like at least a moderate risk patient that I'm worried about and I probably won't send home. Maybe. I think they in that particular study, they did have a particularly low risk population. But that being said, if you have a patient with a normal ECG and two low risk, high sensitivity troponins, their risk of six week absolute events is pretty darn low, independent of their heart score. Practice patterns in the U.S. are quite different in that I think there's a lot more chest pain admissions to OBS units, and there's probably a lot more admission for provocative testing than we do in Canada for historical medical legal reasons. So it's important to think about what problem we're trying to solve here. And I would argue that these scores were designed to help us identify more so the low-risk population that we can safely send home rather than necessarily make sure we haven't missed the high-risk population. I think on balance, that's more what that's about. And I think now in the era of the high-sensitivity troponin, which is an effective, a really effective and discriminating risk stratifier, that may just simply be less relevant. Let's talk a little bit more about shared decision-making for patients with low-risk chest pain. Dr. McCray, you had mentioned earlier that you tell your patients you have a less than 2% or less than a 1% risk you know, after they've, you've gone through your pathway, and you just explain to them that that's what their risk is. Dr. Lang, in terms of shared decision-making, what kind of language do you use when you're speaking to patients about sending them home after a negative workup for ACS? So I think it's important to remember that in Canada, our perception of the role we play in the emergency department is to identify ACS and not necessarily to uncover anyone with coronary disease. 
which is going to be prevalent in the population, especially those who have high heart scores. So I don't think that in Canada, in our current medical legal climate, there's actually that much of a need for shared decision-making when it comes to someone who is clearly low risk, who has two negative troponins, and who I'm sending out for follow-up, either through their family physician or through, could be a rapid access chest pain clinic, which will run a stress test on them in the next few days. More likely, we're going to bring shared decision-making in in a patient who has known coronary disease, is there with some significant symptomatology, but may still prefer a more conservative approach to their care. And that's usually something that I'll bring the cardiologist down to discuss. But unlike the U.S. context, which at least until recently was admitting a lot of these low-risk chest pains for investigation and not always for the right reasons, the shared decision-making model makes a lot of sense there, and Eric Hess has done a lot of great work there. When you present risks to that patient, it can actually change their trajectory. So people who would have otherwise been admitted as a routine are now deciding based on their risks to go home. I think your initial point of what exactly are we trying to achieve is really a, a wise point. I think as emergency physicians, we should be looking to identify patients who have an acute coronary syndrome on their ED visit or who are at high risk of having an adverse event in the very near future, as opposed to looking to identify patients who have coronary artery disease, even though that's the language that the AHA guidelines use is to screen for coronary disease, because we know from some of the CCTA literature that diagnosing coronary disease doesn't necessarily translate to improved patient outcomes. Yeah. I mean, what I tell patients is it's very reassuring that your ECGs are normal and your troponins are normal. What we've done today is we've ruled out a heart attack and we've proven that in the next month, it's extremely unlikely that you're, gonna, that you're going to have a heart attack or any problems, but we can't say that you have a normal heart. And so if I'm going to have someone follow up, I'm going to say the reason why I'm having you follow up is to get some testing to try and improve your health and your heart health. Because I think that's one of the big misunderstandings in the general population is that when we do our tests in the emergency department, it means they have a normal heart. And I think that's an important point to tell patients. I agree. All right. You brought up CCTA. Let's talk about prognostication with ancillary tests. So in our latest Journal Jam podcast, we discussed in detail the utility of routine stress testing after low-risk chest pain workup in the ED, and we came to the conclusion that there really is little, if any, role for routine stress testing. In fact, there might be harm. What's your take on stress testing? Dr. Lang, should any patients get a treadmill stress test or nuclear stress test or stress echo for that matter, either in an observational unit after their ED visit or within a couple of days after being sent home? One observation that we're aware of is that over the last two decades, the number of stress test clinics that are in urban centers has grown sevenfold. There were four in Alberta at that time 20 years ago, and there are now 28. Wow. Uh, that's a sevenfold growth, despite only a 50% growth in the population. 
So whereas we we were may have not been in a position to be more definitive in our rule outs 10, 15 years ago, now that we are, I'm wondering whether the current practice pattern of sending patients to stress test directly from the eMERGE may not be in the patient's best interest in the long term. I think in a setting where most people have a primary care physician and have the advantage of the contextual knowledge of the patient and an understanding of their values and preferences, I think that once we've ruled out MI, we can remind the physician that this patient is at risk for having underlying stable coronary disease, but we would leave it to the primary care physician as to whether they want to bring them forward for provocative testing. And I'm talking about, you know, people in their 70s and or older, which is really most of what we see here. Sounds like a perfectly reasonable, well-balanced approach. Dr. McRae, what's your take on stress testing either right from the ED or within a few days? Yeah, I would agree with that. Most of the patients that we discharge after two low-risk troponins and a normal ECG are not going to have an event of any kind. Stress testing isn't going to change that. And so the vast majority of patients that we discharge probably don't need any ancillary testing of any kind. I love it. Right to the point. So when you say ancillary testing of any kind, we haven't really specifically talked about CCTA, a CT scan that looks specifically at the coronaries. As far as I know, in Canada, there's very few, if any, centers that use CCTA routinely for chest pain patients. But in the States, I believe they are still using them quite extensively. Let's talk about like the hardcore evidence here. Dr. McRae, is there any role based on the literature for CCTA after a negative ED workup for ACS? For low-risk patients, probably not. I love it. You're a true academic. Yeah. You say probably not. Yeah. <laughs> it's good not to be dogmatic. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, because <laughs> there's some other experts I'd be asking who would say definitely there's no role. So mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt. Keep on going with that. So probably not. Probably not. So the advocates for CCTA testing would say the negative predictive value for six-week MACE is excellent. That's not a function of the test. That's a function of the population. The population's a low-risk population to start with. So the negative predictive value of the test is going to be fantastic. And so the next question is, does doing CCTA in low-risk chest pain patients change outcomes? And as a broad summary, using CCTA as a first-line test after ruling out MI has tended to contribute to greater resource utilization, longer emergency department lengths of stay, increased use of invasive angiography and revascularization, but without any real substantial benefit in terms of patient outcomes like prevented MIs or prevented deaths. So Anton, you started your podcast by talking about the potential risks of over-investigation. And I think this is a relevant consideration here. If you look at the Choosing Wisely Canada list from cardiology, a good chunk of their recommendations relate to not performing provocative testing on low-risk patients. And the reason is because of the incidence of false positives and the distinct possibility, although I don't think it's well-documented or presented in the literature, of overdiagnosis. So you might, as a result of this overzealous testing, uncover coronary stenosis that's stable, not significant, 
and will completely hamper someone's insurance status, future lifestyle, travel possibilities, possibly a decade or two before they were to become symptomatic and have to have it addressed. So I think our job, again, is to make sure they're not in immediate danger and let their primary care physician and usual processes of care in a well-resourced environment determine when the CAD becomes latent. And maybe no more than someone coming in with a heart score of five who just happens to be there for another reason, like an ankle sprain, they shouldn't be sent off for provocative testing either. All right. We had touched a little bit on unstable angina, but I want to really dig a bit deeper into unstable angina. When I started practicing, if a patient came in with a good story for unstable angina, but had normal ECGs and troponins, they would be considered for admission to hospital for further testing. Now, what should be the disposition for a patient with a really good story, but totally negative ED workup, 100% normal ECGs and troponins? You know, on the one hand, you can say, well, if they have normal ECGs and, and normal high sensitivity troponins, their risk is less than 1%. So they should just be sent home and they can deal with any kind of testing as an outpatient. And that seems reasonable from a statistical perspective. Yet it always makes me very nervous when I have a patient with a really good story. And usually what I do is I ask the admitting service to see the patient and decide whether they need more testing or should be admitted. What do we do with these unstable angina patients by history who have a negative ED workup? I think we still have to bear in mind that by all classic definitions, the new onset of typical exertional pain, if it's a great story for, you know, it's I get up to the 11th step and I get this elephant coming onto my chest, EKGs, troponin aside, that's almost pathognomonic for significant new onset coronary ischemia from probably tight stenosis, even if it's not a ruptured plaque. And so I agree with your approach there. If someone's coming in with new exertional symptoms, that's unstable angina, that should be admitted. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that we don't know, even with high sensitivity troponin, is how long a duration of symptoms is required to see a bump in troponin. So the patient who's having five minutes of symptoms with exertion that happens reproducibly over the last several weeks that gets better with rest after five minutes or gets better with some nitro after five minutes, that could still very much be indicative of symptomatic coronary disease. And I still worry about those patients because I'm not confident that their symptoms have been long enough to see a bump in troponin. Just anecdotally, I tend to refer most of those patients to cardiology for evaluation in the emergency department. Half the time they admit them, half the time they send them home. The vast majority of the time their provocative testing either is inpatients or is outpatients is fine. But I still think that the patient with a classic story, especially with relatively short duration of symptoms, like five to 10 minutes at a time, you may just not see any objective evidence of ischemia when you evaluate them. And so all you have to go on is, is history. And I think you should take that history seriously. That's such a great point. And one thing I would warn your listeners about is the false negative provocative testing, I believe, is increased in people who are physically fit. So if they've been sitting on a widow maker, a narrow left main, 
for weeks and uh, have been experiencing ischemic symptoms with exertion during their runs or whatever, uh, they, they, may, they may be that rare patient who's always flying through their stress tests with no problem at all. But in fact, they've got serious disease. So no test is perfect. Okay, here's the final review before we get into the future of low-risk chest pain assessment in the emergency department. Again, MIS-ACS is not about the wrong clinical decision tool or misinterpretation of troponin, but rather a failure to consider ACS on the differential diagnosis in the first place. History. The rule is, atypical is typical. Know which patients are at risk for atypical presentations. For the ECG pearls, Non-specific T-wave changes are not necessarily benign, and an isolated FLIP-T and or ST depression in AVL can be a sign of an early STEMI. One single undetectable high-sensitivity troponin done after three hours of chest pain onset plus a normal ECG rules out MI and reduces MACE to below about 2%. Add the heart score to a single high-sensitivity troponin, and the MACE lowers to less than about 1%. Then there's two-hour delta troponins. For patients whose onset of chest pain is less than three hours, do two troponins, two hours apart, and if the delta T troponin, for example, is more than 10 nanograms per liter or greater than 20% change, that's a rule in. So let's review the heart score. Remember that really low-risk patients don't need a heart score, and that really high-risk patients don't need the heart score either. It's that middle group who needs it. And if you apply the heart score blindly, you'll probably miss about 4% of MACE. It's also important to remember the problems with the heart score. First, you can have a grossly positive troponin and still score in the low-risk category on heart. Second, heart score does not take into account dynamic ECG changes. And third, heart score may overestimate risk in patients with normal ECGs and negative troponins. Now, what about provocative testing when it comes to making disposition decisions? Routine provocative testing, or CCTA, for low-risk chest pain patients is actually associated with increased length of stay, increased cost, increased subsequent invasive procedures, and no significant reduction in subsequent acute myocardial infarctions, or MACE. Remember, that our job in the ED is to identify ACS and not necessarily to identify everyone with coronary artery disease. Patients need to understand this when you discharge them home. Before we wrap it up, just a reminder that the Quiz Vault is now live on the EM Cases site. About 1,500 of your colleagues have already signed up, so please try it out and give us your feedback so we can give you the best free test-enhanced learning experience possible. And there are still a few spots left for podcast camp, September 21st and 22nd in Toronto. If you're thinking of starting a podcast or you want to up your game, we've got hands-on personalized coaching from myself and a few of my amazing colleagues of the entire podcast production process so that you can be a kick-ass podcaster. So we're nearing the end of the podcast. But one more question that I do want to ask is what you see in the future, say next five or 10 years when it comes to working up patients for ACS in the ED. So Dr. McRae, you want to give us your uh, prediction of where we're headed? 
I mean, I think the most substantial pragmatic change that we're going to see is just that manufacturers are going to phase out conventional troponin assays as they get approval, regulatory approval for high sensitivity assays. And so we're going to see more high sensitivity troponin, and that's going to be an evolving process over the next five years. And so the challenge for emergency physicians is to learn how to use these tools to their best potential because you really do have to use them differently than you did with the conventional generation of troponin testing. I'm confident that evidence is going to emerge imminently that you can really use these tests to not just rule in or rule out MI, but to better prognosticate which patients are actually clearly unlikely to benefit from additional testing. And so it seems more likely that we will be able to rely on clinical and biomarker testing for risk stratification as opposed to any kind of functional or anatomic testing. This might be a bit provocative, and I don't know if everybody in the audience is going to agree with this, but I think what we're going to be seeing down the road as the accountability and the spending of healthcare dollars comes under more scrutiny is how wisely we are choosing what is actually the most expensive cardiac test we order in the emergency department, which is the cardiology consult. Bringing the consultant down, having them consume hours of ER time for our patients is a significant drain on resources. And I would wager that most folks in the audience do not know what percentage of their chest pain roulette ACS consults that go to cardiology consultants actually result in admission. I know that in our group, we have some significant practice variation on that front. And what that means is that some of our physicians are perhaps having a lower threshold to involving consultants when in fact they've got the tools at their disposal to be more specific in their requests. Well, on the one hand, I think we've we've been able to simplify a lot of things in this podcast in terms of who we can definitely rule out and who's safe to go home and how to really understand and use troponins properly and the value of the history and which parts of the history have the best predictive values. I think we've been able to simplify a lot of those things down into practical things that people can use from a uh, administrative and broader picture perspective. There's still lots of mud there as Dr. Lang brought up in the end there, there's a lot of controversy still. So we welcome uh, any comments on the uh, post and any emails to myself about how we can make the future for low-risk chest pain patients better. So thank you very much, Dr. Lang. Thank you very much, Dr. McRae. Your insights were absolutely incredible. I mean, it's just so great to have, on the one hand, a true expert researcher on these low-risk chest pain patients And on the other hand, a leader and very experienced emergency physician who's contributed so much to the community at large. Thank you, Anton. Thanks. It was fun. (laughs) 